The, the problem about central banks and about um, conventional macroeconomic theory in general is that it doesn't ask how we got here. Mm. I said, Greenspan was get great at saying, where are we? What's mm. happening? But the important thing is to understand how we got here and why we got here. And that's just simply never done. And welcome to this IEA book club event with uh, Bernard Connolly. I'm Daniel Freeman. I'm a research assistant here at the IEA. Uh, before we turn to our panelists, uh, we just have a few housekeeping points. Um, first off, due to GDPR, I'm obliged to tell you that we are filming this event. Uh, the camera will be focused on the stage, but um, during the Q&A, your, your voice and question will be recorded, so just be aware of that. Um, we'll begin with the proceedings tonight with a discussion between me and Bernard. Uh, this should last about 20 minutes, uh, and after this we will have uh, a Q&A session to give you the chance to ask questions to our speaker. Um, I would like to ask all of you to turn off your mobile phones or set them to aeroplane mode. Um, I'll give you a few moments to do that. Um, if you need to use the lavatories, uh, there is a women's toilet out of that door on your left and down the stairs, it's immediately on your left, and there is a men's toilet through that door and on your right, uh, it should be difficult to miss it. Um, as you will have noticed uh, on coming here, we are having some building works, so that means that our uh, garden is uh, out of action. If you are desperate for fresh air or to smoke, you'll have to go out through the front door. Um, so with that out of the way, I'm delighted to introduce tonight's guest speaker, Bernard Connolly. Uh, Bernard is an economist formerly employed by uh, the European Commission and is the author of the international best-selling book on monetary matters, The Rotten Heart of Europe. Uh, a consultant and wealth manager, uh, he is highly respected by central bankers, policymakers and financial market participants and has published innumerable articles uh, in both the financial and general press. Um, Bernard, thank you for being here. So thank today you. we are going to be talking about Bernard's new book, You Always Hurt the One You Love, which, despite the title, is not a romantic novel. Um, it is something far more interesting, um, thought-provoking and substantial. This is an account of 30 years of failure on the part of central bankers and how, in the author's view, uh, this is threatening the very foundations and sustainability of capitalism. So, first off, what made you decide to write this book now? Well, really, I'd been writing it for 25 years as the, um, the clients of the financial market firms that I used to work for and then my own firm uh, would, uh, would know. And I... I 
In the 80s and early 90s, my main focus had been on, on Europe. When I was ejected from the European Commission, I had to broaden my compass and became very, very interested in um, uh, the US economy, and in particular US uh, monetary policy. At a time when uh, US firms had regained um, a lead in, in cutting-edge technologies. If you remember in the 80s, everyone thought Japan was the, mm. the big thing. Um, and there was um, a, an atmosphere of very considerable optimism about the US um, economy. Not in the first half of the 90s, but by the time we got to the mid-90s, there was a lot going on in the US economy. Um, there was um, the potential for a, a big wave of investment and subsequently, and that's an important word in this context, subsequently an improvement in productivity. Now, 10 years before that, I think in 1988, I had written a paper about um, Nigel Lawson's response to a somewhat similar, though there were differences, but somewhat similar um, period of optimism um, in the British economy as a result of the, the, the Thatcherite uh, reforms. And it's quite hard to remember now, but I think uh, there were 60,000 new companies created in Britain in 1988. Mm. Um, um, in both cases, very clever men and very ardent capitalists Nigel Lawson in the British case and Alan Greenspan in the American case misunderstood the demand side implications of supply side improvement. And by that I mean that they failed to realise that if you have um, uh, a burst of innovation in a particular segment of the economy, call it tech as a shorthand in, in, in the US case. If you have that burst of innovation, because there's a, 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 a massively increased um, prospective rate of return on capital mm. in those firms. Mm. Now, if there are enough of them for that increase in the rate of return in those firms to have an impact on the economy-wide mm. projected rate of return on capital, then what should happen is that the real interest rate goes up to, to match that. And if it doesn't, and it didn't mm. in, in either case, um, first in Britain in the mid-80s, and then in the United States in the, uh, the, the mid-1990s, or I think up enough or soon enough, you have an imbalance in the time structure of production and demand. Let's say, if you have, you have this burst of innovation, which, in order to be translated into um, increased productivity, has to go through investment. Now, there may be some general-purpose technologies, there may be some disembodied investment, but generally speaking, when there's a burst of innovation of that kind, there has to be, innovation, there has to be investment to transform the technological advance into productivity improvement. Now, when investment is being done, it requires resources. It adds to aggregate demand. 
without increasing aggregate supply. Mm. When it has been done, the investment stops. You get a, a shift in Output aggregate goes supply. Up. So you have a un, unless the interest unless the interest rate coordinates um, saving and investment decisions correctly, you'll have an initial period of overheating, mm. followed by a period of deficient demand. Mm. And that's exactly what we saw with in the, the dot-com bubble. With the dot-com bubble. You mentioned the bubble. Now, the bubble is, 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 uh, is, is another thing that one has to think about very carefully. The bubble arose initially because the rate of interest did not go up as much as the expected rate of return on capital. Mm. So the discounted value of future earnings... Mm goes up. However, once um, uh, a mania begins, and I think it did, I, I was often in New York at the end of the 90s, and you, know, you couldn't go into a restaurant or a cafe without people telling you how much their portfolios had gone up in the, in the mm. past week. Once you get that mania, it, it, it is very difficult to restrain it. Now, the conventional way of looking at bubbles is to say, well, monetary policy has only very blunt instruments. The interest rate is too blunt an instrument to deal with a bubble once it has begun. Mm. Now, that may be true. If you jack interest rates up when the, when, when the bubble is well advanced, you're going to burst it and you're going to get recessions and all sorts of things. Mm. What one should do is prevent the bubble in the first place by making sure that interest rates go up as soon as the central bank can see the signs mm. of an incipient and where it can see the technolog technological innovation it can see the burst of investment and Alan Greenspan uh, piquantly was one of the very few people in the American economy who did spot that mm. he was very very good at looking at the, the details of uh, uh, of economic data and discerning what was happening. What he wasn't so good at was understanding why it was happening and what the consequences of those events were going to be. And rather than taking the view that, oh yes, if we don't raise interest rates now, we're going to dislocate the time structure of production demand uh, over the next few years, he took the view that, oh good, productivity is going to go up, um, so that will solve the problem, will, we'll will, all be more productive. We don't need interest, for, we, it would, we'd be more productive, it would be easier mm. to cope with inflation, we can have lower interest rates without stimulating inflation. Yeah. Uh, the, I'm sorry, but once things have gone wrong, as they, they went wrong, the, the dot-com bubble burst at the beginning of 2000, American firms suddenly realised that they had a lot of new capacity and where was the demand going to come from? Uh, cons consumption had not been held back by higher interest rates or not So there wasn't enough. savings that could then be there thrown no, into... There was no pent-up demand left. Yeah. Um, when the initial burst of investment <laughs> petered out, there was nothing to take its place. Other areas of investment had not been held back. They've been stimulated, in fact, by the, uh, the combination of 
sub-equilibrium interest rates and a great deal of optimism. Mm. Um, consumption hadn't been held back. There was a hole in demand. Uh, it took the Fed a while to realise that, but eventually, um, by the beginning of 2001, they were cutting interest rates very hard. Mm. And cutting interest rates very hard, um, the Fed funds rate ultimately got down to, I think, uh, a half a percent or one percent in 2004, simply recreates the same the problem. problem. But instead we, of uh, tech, where does the money go into after that point? Well, it goes into um, financial assets, mm. and that's what we saw. And it goes into housing, mm. and that's what we saw. There's a tremendous um, housing bubble in the United States from about 2002 or three until um, the peak was probably the end of 2006. But and that bubble was, that housing bubble was associated with a credit bubble. With mm. Where were people getting the money to pay these inflated house prices? They were borrowing it, and we're all, of course, familiar with the uh, with uh, the term subprime borrowing. And that mm. was just, um, if you like, the tip of the iceberg of a of, of a massive superstructure uh, of, of credit, of new credit instruments, of credit derivatives, wholly dependent on the maintenance of low interest <laughs> rates. Uh -huh. um, so, but surely in this case, this. If, if um, certain central bankers at least were able to perceive this problem um, in, even in the late 90s, um, but were able to explain it away by saying, oh, well, you're throwing lots of investment into tech, but that's going to boost productivity. Mm -hmm. So that, even if you think it's misguided, that's at least an explanation. Why wouldn't they take more measures earlier with a housing bubble where it's not obviously going to lead to increased productivity. In because the they denied that there could be a housing bubble. Right. Um, I mean, e even the, the most enlightened and sensible of uh, central bankers, uh, Mervyn King, for instance, who was a, 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 great, a great central banker. Who recommends the book yes. as it happens. Um, took the view that um, house prices reflected uh, the future stream of housing service, housing services. Um, and they, the Bank of England, took the view that um, a house price um, explosion would not add significantly to demand. Mm. Um, and in a sense, they were right. It adds to demand only if there is a bubble. Mm. And if you don't think there's a bubble, then there's no problem. And as where the um, um, stock market bubble was concerned, the, the standard view of central bankers and academic economists at the time, as I mentioned before, that you can't really do anything about it. Um, and Ben Bernanke, who was Greenspan's successor, <laughs> insisted frequently that if we raise interest rates, um, you won't be able, all you do is um, reduce investment. Mm. And no amount of increase, and I say no amount of increase in interest rates 
will deter investment in, in the bubbly, in the, what he called the bubbly sectors. But it shouldn't. I mean, what you want is interest rates not... If the, the, the firms with very strong investment opportunities often add 20, 30, 40% prospective returns. Mm. Now, if the interest rate goes up from 5% to 6%, that doesn't make uh, any difference to them. Mm. But you don't want it to. You want that increase in from 5% to 6% or whatever it is to hold back, to postpone investment in those sectors where the rate of return hasn't rocketed. Mm. Postpone it until the burst of investment in the high-tech sector or whatever has Increases subsided, has subsided mm. increased supply, mm. and then there's something to fill the gap that's left yeah. by that sudden stop mm. in high-tech investment. And that, the, you know, the, I think the, the, the problem about central banks and about um, conventional macroeconomic theory in general is that it doesn't ask how we got here. Mm. I said, Greenspan was get great at saying, where are we? What's mm. happening? But the important thing is to understand how we got here and why yeah. we got here. And that's just simply never done. Mm. Well, that, that's a really interesting point because I, how much of this reluctance to put up interest rates in, in the, the 2000s and, well, even of the last... 10 years before the, yeah, the recent before burst of inflation. Mm -hmm. How much of this is essentially, um, how much of this is a difference in economic perspective? They think it's actually fine. And how much is it uh, essentially political? That if we, if we increase interest rates and then the economy starts to tank, we get blamed. And also, how are we going to justify this if inflation is sort of chugging along at two-ish percent, as it was through much of the 2000s. Or even falling below two yeah. percent. The problem that the central banks perceived was for a long time that they couldn't get the inflation rate up mm. to their target of two percent. There's always a bit of politics in, in everything, but I, um, I think that was most evident in right about in leading up to the presidential election in 98 in the US where the administration was taking the view in 96, 97, there's a bubble, the sooner it's burst, the better, we can get things back on track again before the election. Well, that didn't happen by the time we got into 98. Oh, my goodness, it's far too late now. We can't do anything. Mm. We've, got to let it, we've got to let it um, rip. But the main thing was um, um, a, a failure of the academic macroeconomics industry, I think it's better to call it an industry than a profession, um, didn't understand how capitalism worked. It, it didn't understand that, the, what, well, what is capital? And, and Marxists would say it's stored up labour. Um, what I think one should regard capital as being is, is stored up future productive potential. Um, financial markets and uh, the rate of interest trade, if you like, the perceptions of the, the past and the present against expectations of the, of the future. Well, that first part of the triplet, mm. the past, 
is important and is typically disregarded in mainstream macroeconomics, largely because um, the, to an extent, the mathematization of economics has been a good thing. It's imposed a, a degree of rigor. But what it's done is oversimplify the way of, uh, of looking at economics. If um, standard theories, well, so-called dynamic stochastic general equilibrium theory, basically assumes that um, there are shocks to the economy which are inexplicable, unpredictable, un unforecastable, and policy has to react to them. But these shocks are, are, are statistically well-behaved. Mm. They have a mean of zero, uh, the IID, and um, independently distributed independent variables. There. Once the shock has um, subsided, you just go back to everything's fine again. You go back to normal. <laughs> and it's, that is clearly not the case, because what we've seen is that the response of monetary policy to shocks has set in motion an unstable equilibrium, which has been getting worse and worse and worse, yeah. and still getting worse. I mean, things have changed yeah. over the past three or four years, perhaps we'll come on to that, mm. but uh, the, there is a, a failure of almost of willpower mm. in the economics profession that we don't want to upset the apple cart. Yeah. We have to rethink everything if we acknowledge that we can't just look at where we are today, but we have to look at where we were yesterday and 10 years ago and how we got from there to today. Mm. That's what capitalism is, is about. It's about that progression from the past to the present to the, the future. And that's simply not taken account of Properly sufficiently. addressed, yeah. So you, you brought up sort of the issue with uh, shocks and certainly over the last three years we've, yeah. had, uh, we've had quite a few of them. Um, Obviously, inflation today is uh, a, a far greater political issue than it has been for yes. over 30 years in, in most of the Western world. Uh, in your view, what's the main driving force behind uh, the most recent uh, sort of surge of in inflation? Well, of course, there, there, there was a shock. Mm. There, was, there was a series of negative supply shocks. Uh, COVID, the lockdowns and their catastrophic um, um, effects, uh, the Ukraine war, we're all familiar with the series mm. of shocks that's, uh, that's, that's hit. And those shocks were negative shocks to potential output. Mm. Um, if you maintain demand in the face of a downturn in productive potential, you're going to get inflation. And mm -hmm. that's part of the story. Yeah. Another part of the story is the way in which that attempt to maintain demand was, 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 was done. You know, I think given lockdown, mm. the first lockdowns at any rate, it would have been very difficult for governments not to try to replace the Incomes of the people who were told so through the work. furlough scheme, for example. Yeah. Um, but initially, you know, one thought one was told this is going to last for three weeks. Mm. 
Um, it didn't last for three weeks. It went on, in effect, for about... Well, the furlough scheme didn't, but the lockdowns yeah. went on for a couple of years. Mm. There were very substantial um, government deficits. Now, if the central banks, as they did, or governments took the view that interest rates were going to remain negative in real terms, as mm. they had been before COVID, then you just basically don't worry about that additional um, spending and borrowing. Mm. Even if you think that interest rates, are, real rates, are going up to, I don't know, whatever they were in the 19th century, let's say 2 2.5%, mm. um, as long as the government deficit came back down when the lockdowns ended, it wasn't a catastrophic event in, in public finance terms. Mm. Um, but what we've seen, and, and both here and even more worrying, I think, in the United States, is that there's been a succession of, um, of massive government deficits not related anymore to COVID mm. and lockdown. Deficits that seem as though they're going to go on effectively for forever. Mm. Uh, come back to what, in a moment, to what that does to the way that central banks look at the world. But the third element was that central banks looked back at the period from 2008 to 2000, whenever it was, 20, mm. and said there were uh, negative interest rates, much. And, real we and we didn't get inflation. And we had massive quantitative expansion. Mm. And we didn't get inflation. And they failed to recognise that the, the quantitative expansion, the very low interest rates, the asset price bubbles, which um, were revived from about 2013 onwards, mm were necessary to prevent recession because mm. of the underlying intertemporal disequilibrium that mm. I tried to, tried to sketch. And in those circumstances, if you've got to keep printing money in order to avoid a recession, <laughs> by definition, it's not going to cause inflation. Mm. In the very different circumstances of the past two or three years, where you have fiscal expansion have fiscal combined expansion. with monetary expansion, combined You've with supply shocks. Fiscal expansion, a supply shock. If you pour money into the economy, mm. if you have substantial money printing, to use that phrase, um, you're going to get inflation. Mm. Part of the problem was that the, the central banks, governments, in 2020 were worried, and they were quite right to worry initially, there might be a Keynesian recession mm. as a result of COVID and lockdowns. Um, because a Keynesian recession was staved off by things like the furlough schemes, mm. one could characterise that series of events as something like a, a weekend. If you think during the week people are, are, are producing, uh, the weekend they go out to pubs and restaurants and mm. they're not working in the spend. I mean, some people do, we know, but in yeah. general, you get output mm. Monday to Friday, spending Saturday and Sunday. Aha. Now, no one worries about the fact that output goes down at the weekend. Mm. 
Because, um, you know, it's going to go back up again on Monday. But if you end up having almost two years of weekend... Exactly. It causes problems. If you have two years of weekends, it causes problems. But it also um, misleads central banks into thinking that, that, that... You know, we heard, even still, we talk about... We hear um, people talking about the Great Recession of 2020. Mm. It wasn't. It was like an extended weekend. Mm. And central banks don't print money, don't cut interest rates because there are weekends. Mm. And they didn't realise that the, the right way to look at what happened in 2020 was as a sort of extended weekend, rather than a, a, an incipient... Well, it was an incipient Keynesian recession, but it's very quickly staved off. And they still continue to think about it in those terms. Mm-hmm. And the um, combination of supply shocks, the, the fiscal spending, the massive monetary expansion mm. was inevitably going to create inflation and so, has done. So what should they have done differently? If you had been appointed as the governor of the Bank of England with dictatorial policy uh, powers over monetary policy in 2020, say, what would your approach have been? Well, I think in March 2020... I'd have cut interest rates, mm-hmm. as I think the bank did. But as soon as it became apparent that there was not going to be a Keynesian recession, and that took a bit longer to become apparent in Britain than it did in the United States, mm. there was a bit of a more miserable atmosphere and the lockdowns were, 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 were harsher and went on for longer. But by the end of, certainly by the end of 2020, the Bank of England should have realised that it was by then something like an extended weekend rather than a Keynesian recession. Mm-hmm. You didn't need additional monetary stimulus in those circumstances. Yeah. They should have taken back the interest rates. Uh, interest rate cut. They certainly should not have engaged in the massive QE in which yeah. they did engage. Well, w- one of the interesting things I read recently in... Um, uh, an economic affairs article, which is the IEA's um, uh, economics uh, journal, but a uh, piece by William uh, William Buter, the mm. Dutch American um, uh, economist, was he pointed out that the Fed's um, QE program, um, bond buying, was still going until March 2022. Yes, a lot when it was very clear that the you know. Covid was no longer a major yeah. issue. Well, there's, but, you know, I think it's partly um, that no one likes admitting to mistakes, mm. and you hope that well something will turn up and get you out of it. Yeah. Um, and the central banks did not admit to mistakes. I think the the Bank of England never never has. Mm. In the states, in addition, there was an additional factor that the the Fed had become, well, woke in a word, in that if you look back at what Powell was saying in his press conferences in 20 and 21 and 22, he always prefaced his presentation with a paragraph about the impact on um, minorities and low-income workers. Mm -hmm. Do do you think that actually was dictating their, their policy makings or was it just Well, it may dressing? have been an excuse. I don't ah, know. 
but it certainly had a, 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 an impact. Whether mm. it, whether they really thought, well, they did think that we have to run the economy at very low, very low rates of unemployment mm. if we're going to be inclusive. Because the only way we can get the unemployment rate for blacks and um, other ethnic uh, minority ethnic groups down to acceptable levels is if we push down the overall unemployment rate to, to very low levels. Right. And they believed at the time that the, the Phillips curve was very flat, mm. that inflation hardly responded to change variations in the level of unemployment. Mm. So they weren't taking a risk in that, and they were um, furthering their, their, their social objectives in trying to push the unemployment rate down sufficiently to improve the labour market for, for, for blacks and so on. Right, I see. Um, so, de dealing with the kind of final um, uh, chapter in, in, in this book, which is helpfully titled, What Needs to be Done, um, you, you come up with sort of two, two solutions uh, to, to the, the, o the overall broader mess that we've got ourselves into. Um, the first you call recapitalismization, which is bit of a mouthful, but it I think is. it gets the idea across. Yeah. Um, and the second one, well, the second one we'll deal in a moment, within a moment. But could you explain what you mean by recapitalismization? Yeah, what it, what it means essentially is that there have to be measures which will increase the prospective rate of return on capital, such that the real rate of interest can rise to consistency with the rate of time preference, <laughs> which the rate of time preference determines the very long run equilibrium real rate of interest, and do that without crushing the economy. Mm -hmm. um, you've got to get the rate of return. In a sense, it's a validating ex post the expectations that have been falsely built into current asset prices. And how do you do that? Well, you don't do it by increasing the rates of return on capital in existing firms by um, regulatory capture, rent-seeking. There's a huge amount of uh, rent-seeking in, in Western economies at present. Mm. Uh, markets have been rigged to the advantage of, uh, uh, of large firms. Uh, the most important market of all trading between the past, the present and the future, the interest rate is, is of course, rigged mm. by central banks. Maybe it has to be. You don't do it, you don't do it through um, handing more to Jeff Bezos or whatever. What you have to do is, is stimulate um, additional increases in productivity through <laughs> radical deregulation mm. and tax cuts. Right. Now, that sounds like a very sort of right-wing programme. Well, yeah, isn't and this just, didn't we try that with uh, trust? Um, we, did, we talked about it, but it didn't actually happen. I mean, mm. the, the interesting thing about trust is that the, the financial market reaction was exactly what the economy needed. Higher interest rates and a weaker currency. Mm. Now, typically, one thinks of higher interest rates as being associated with a stronger currency. 
if there's a loss of confidence, mm. or we might put it differently, saying there's an, an outbreak of realism mm. about future prospects, then exactly what you, what you need is mm. a higher interest rate to hold back consumption, mm. right? um, a weaker exchange rate to stimulate exports so that the mm-hmm. holding back of domestic demand doesn't create a recession. But that, that, that's... Um, um, but it didn't that's, seem to be politically feasible, even if in well, the abstract... I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that anything like that was ever in the, the minds of Liz Truss or quasi mm. uh, uh, no, that's <laughs> the, a fair amount that wasn't in their minds. Well, we tried it. We didn't try it. I think everyone agrees that in terms of um, public relations or, or political calculation, it was a very cat-handed mm. um, uh, uh, attempt at improving things. However, right, mm. it may have been in fundamental terms. But what you have to do, if this apparently very right-wing programme... Mm is going to have any chance of acceptability. This is where we come on to your point yeah. two. You have to couple it with a reduction in the rents made available to, mm. to large firms. And you have to do something about what I've called the, uh, the unacceptable element of wealth, or perhaps illusory mm-hmm. is, is a better word. What I mean by unacceptable or illusory wealth is wealth accruing to person X which if it was spent would reduce consumption for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Could you now, give me an example of where that might be the case today? Um, well, a bit less now than six months or a year ago but housing wealth, mm. stock market wealth mm. um, asset price wealth in in general. Now, if everyone who owns stocks and shares said, oh, great, I'm wealthy, I'm going to spend this, um, as um, 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 we don't have to be like Marcus Rashford and pull out a 600,000 Rolls Royce when you crush a 700,000 pound Rolls Royce (laughs) the day before, but... I'm, I'm going to spend my stock market wealth. What does it get spent on? Where are the resources? Where is the output? So it just leads to inflation. To, it, it, it just leads to inflation. Right. And it impoverishes everyone else. People who don't have this People inflated asset. It. As I mentioned, uh, Jeff Bezos... He is an extremely rich man, but there is an argument to be said that, well, what he did, he did actually substantially mm-hmm. increase consumption possibilities for everyone else. Mm-hmm. So how, how do we deal with this unacceptable wealth, as you call it? Um, well, the, the um, idea I put forward in the book is that there should be a substantial tax. A wealth on, tax? No, not a wealth tax. A tax on unrealised capital gains, and that's very different. A wealth tax, a tax on genuine wealth, would be destructive of innovation, of enterprise. It would be, um, uh, it would be wholly pernicious. Mm-hmm. What I'm suggesting is that there should be a tax on the, what you might call the bubble element of unrealised gains. How, how do we determine what's 
well, which part of this asset is bubble and which part is real. Well, you can do it in a, in a, in a rough and ready way, but no rougher or readier than the way in which any tax is, um, is, is assumed. Um, by attempting to establish when there was an intertemporal equilibrium in the economy. And I suggested in the book that it was 1995 in the United States and 1997, coincidentally or not, mm-hmm. in, um, in, in, in Britain. Um, and you, you, you can look at the, the PE ratio. Mm. Um, and for, for firms who have done very well, mm-hmm. who have contributed to... to um, to genuine wealth, will have PE ratios that are um, above the the average. Mm. The if you try to say, well, what is an equilibrium an equilibrium level of the PE ratio? Once you've established that or attempted to establish that, mm. you can look at today's PE ratios. And if the adjusted for inflation and GDP growth, where the, the E takes, takes account of that, and you can impose a tax on the excess. Mm-hmm. So now, the increase take, in the, the value over well, time, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the increase in the value that is not related to... Um, uh, Economic growth. Through economic growth and future productive potential. No, right. that's rough and ready. Mm. And you don't, I mean, you, you won't. I said 95 in the United States, 97 in Britain. Mm. Anyone who bought shares in 2021, the, the, the calculation of any possible excess capital gains tax for them. Mm would take into account the obviously the starting price, which is already very, very much higher than it had been in 1997. So you're not going to penalise people retrospectively, so to speak. Um, now, there are all sorts of problems with that. And first of all, the idea that the PE ratio can be, an appropriate PE ratio can be calculated, depends on identifying a period in which there was intertemporal equilibrium, Mm. You know, I, I, I can have a go at that, but people can disagree. It depends on the, um, when I talk about the PE ratio for the economy, effectively that's GD, GDP to overall profits. Mm. There are all sorts of accounting issues involved in, in that. It's very difficult to um, um, establish PE ratios for... Um, closely held business assets for artworks, whatever. You probably couldn't do this, it. This would apply to real estate as well. It would. Mm. And, and that, that's, that's politically difficult. There's no yeah. doubt about that. Especially but as, w- w- wouldn't, would this not affect pension funds and, and things like that? Uh, yes, well, no, because what I've suggested is a sort of safeguard mechanism where... The, the taxable unrealised gain would have to be more than... Five million dollars, States, five I think million you, dollars. you suggest. So yeah. almost everyone would be untouched, mm. which is, the, in a sense, the idea. 
the, the inequality of, uh, of, uh, of wealth um, can be treated to an extent mm -hmm. by having a tax on unrealised bubble gains above a certain limit. Mm. And what's to stop, just on a sort of final point on this, what's to stop, you, you make it very clear that this is a sort of one-off windfall event, essentially. What's to stop a, a left-wing government coming back in five years' time and saying, well, this, you know, we've had lots of other distortions since then, so very conveniently we mm -hmm. also want to uh, have another... Uh, raid on unacceptable wealth. Well, I mean, the one-off nature of it, in in a, in a sense, in a sense, solves that problem. Is you're looking back, uh, you're calculating a PE ratio. You're taxing that excess. It's true. There's nothing to stop a, a government coming in in two years' time and saying, "Well, the previous government imposed um, oh, forty percent tax on that." Mm. Um, We'll have the other sixty percent, or whatever, or some portion of that. What this proposal attempts to do is to set out a program, as I've called it in this ugly phrase, recapitalismization, mm. that would eliminate bubble gains. Mm. You'd be, you'd be raising the prospective rate of return on, on investment to allow the real interest rate to go up to, um, to be consistent with the rate of time preference. If you do that, you don't need bubbles anymore. Right. See, at the moment, we've needed bubbles to, not over the past two years, we've had the opposite problem, but we're going to go back to needing bubbles to prevent recession. Right. If you want to get out of that, You've got to do something. Now, I don't imagine that this would be easy. <laughs> to be frank, I don't imagine it's at all going to happen. <laughs> but <laughs> one has to have, you know, one has to think about what, what is needed. Mm. And for, as my um, bosses in the European Commission always used to say, il faut lancer l'idée. Um, and um, that's what I'm trying to do, to, to get people to think about how we've got into this situation. Mm. And a very narrow route out of, route it. Out of it. Yeah, well, I, I think it's undoubtedly true that this book definitely has uh, uh, elements that are very thought-provoking for people on the, the free market economic liberals. Um, even if not all of us agree with every element of it. Um, I think I'm going to move now to um, Q&A. So we have a roving microphone. Uh, does, if you'd like a question, can you put your hand up? Uh, can we choose the guy at the end? Yes. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for the talk. It was very interesting. Um, I kept thinking about, while well, you were mentioning the different areas in which rates don't match expected returns. What do you, what's your view? And also, if you know about it, what is the central bankers in general view on the very elemental idea that the same that we don't need and we don't want, and it would be horrible to have someone deciding what the price of wood should be because nobody would know and it would distort everything. Mm -hmm. 
why do we need and why do we want someone to decide what the price of money is, which is way more complicated and mm -hmm. has consistently failed for the last 100 years? Well, the alternative is... Thank you. Free banking, I suppose. And the... Uh, it's not at all clear that the behaviour, the, um, uh, the success of uh, a free banking system would be greater than that of central banks. So the, the basic problem, um, I'm sure you know, the basic problem is, is, is asymmetric information. And the, <coughs> the Charles Goodhart, oh... 30 years ago, wrote a book about why do we need central banks. And it does, it does come down to asymmetric information. And if you think about the financial crisis we've had, and particularly the 2007-2008, that was very much a problem of asymmetric information, but asymmetric information in the, in the, the private banking system, um, or specifically the shadow banking system. Um, I know something about that because I was working for a firm that was at the very epicentre of the financial crisis at the, um, uh, uh, at the time. Um, there has been, really from the late 19th century, a sort of social contract that says depositors have to be protected. And for depositors to be protected, Without a central bank, you have to have something like 100% um, reserve ratios for, for banks. Which is an idea that's been put forward by you know, very um, eminent and um, very respected economists. The, the, the combination of the, the politics and the economic dislocation of a major change in the system in, the, in, in that direction, I think, is uh, would be likely to lead to a new period of financial crisis. Again, if we were starting from, a, you know, a tableau rasa, you might not want to have the system we have today with central banks. But starting from where we are, I think it's just too dangerous to try to abolish them. Now, you can do things to central banks and the banking system in general to try to make it safer, and we, we've seen a, a whole host of initiatives from various international bodies over the past um, 15 years to try to increase the safety of the banking system. But all those measures neglect the fact that the underlying reason for the problems has been this intertemporal disequilibrium because central banks have got interest rates wrong. And, and, and that is just a horrible, horrible state of affairs. I have to say, I'm, well, I'm frankly very, very pessimistic uh, about the future of our economies, about the future of uh, financial systems, about the future of democracy. Um, Starting from here, we're in a mess. Uh, I don't, you know, I've put, I've put forward a suggestion, which I have very, um, very few hopes of seeing uh, even discussed, never mind implemented. Uh, but I'm basically extremely pessimistic about the future. 
I'm sorry to have to say that. Yeah, it certainly comes across in the book yeah. as it happens. Well, um, uh, another question over on this side, please. Thank you. The corollary of your um, um, suggestion on um, taxing of uh, bubble gains away is that when the bubbles burst, that money should be given back to the investor who suffer losses. Now, that will happen at precisely the time when there's likely to be a recession and when mm -hmm. sovereign governments will be under uh, real pressure on their fiscal balances. And they'll go bust at that point if they have to give the money back. And they will have to give the money back if we're going to be fair. No, What's the solution to this? I don't think they have to give the money back to be fair. Um, the... The gains have not been associated with increases in, in, in productive potential. The programme as a whole would involve raising the rate of return to allow the rate of interest to, to go up without crashing asset prices or the economy. Now, that may be hopelessly optimistic, but that's the intention. Just so to speak, to validate ex post the asset prices which currently currently exist. Now it may be that that um, set of measures to increase the rate of return, to increase the rate of interest, will change the distribution of, of wealth as it is today. Now, so much the better if that's what it does. The idea about taxing um, unrealised gains is just a sort of almost a, um, a throwaway to say, look, what can we do to try to not make it look as though this, this programme of recapitalisation is just a right-wing ramp? Now, it may not work, probably won't work, but I don't, I don't think that it, it, it causes a series of problems which would end, end, ultimately end up in, in, um, in government failure. By the way, I, sh I should say that one of the big worries I have at the moment, particularly in the United States, where there's a full employment deficit of 6% of GDP, is that the, the basic arithmetic of that suggests that if, if you're going to stabilise the debt, you've got to have highly negative real interest rates. And it's bad for everyone. And that really does worry me. And how is the central bank going to be politically forced into um, operating those negative real interest rates? I think it might well be. We, we are at risk of seeing, as you know, it's called fiscal dominance in the, in the literature. And that's a big worry. Mm -hmm. Hey, I believe we had a question at the back. Hello, thank you for the talk, very interesting. Um, given the title of your book, I was expecting far more central bank bashing, frankly. But um, very simple question. Do you think that the Bank of England should remain independent? short answer is I don't know. Let, let me try to explain why, why I don't know. Um, 
I've thought for a long time that the combination of central bank independence and inflation targeting was going to have unacceptable political results because it, it, it means that the central bank essentially is determining the distribution of wealth in the economy. And it shouldn't be doing that. It doesn't have a democratic mandate to do that. And that's, a, that's something, I think, which is objectionable. But again, from where we are now, with, um, we've had significant inflation, there is a risk of fiscal dominance that eliminating central bank independence would make that fiscal dominance a reality very quickly. And we would have very substantial and extremely damaging and corrosive inflation. So, you know, maybe four years ago, I would have said central bank independence has become objectionable. Now, we may have to put up with it as a defence against um, fiscal irresponsibility. Having said that, I mean, we, we all have to realise that we don't live in democracies anymore. That we're run by um, a clarity of bureaucrats, quangocrats, charities who are unaccountable and often quite gleefully anti-democratic to the extent that, you know, hardly seems to matter what the government thinks. There's the clerisy that's got its own idea. Now, the central, central banks, by and large, you say you're expecting more central bank bashing in the book. There isn't. In fact, I have a lot of kind things to say about a lot of individual central bankers. I think that compared with, I don't know, what, the BBC or the National Trust or the various regulatory agencies and so on, the central banks are pretty decent people. <laughs> That's maybe because I just know more of those than I do of the, um, uh, of the, the regulators and the, um, uh, and the quangocrats. Right, there's another example of saying that <laughs> if we were starting with a clean sheet, we could do things differently. We're not starting with a clean sheet, and there's, a, there's always a set of serious political questions of trade-offs. What is the... What is, I remember Harry Johnson, who is a very great economist of the sort of 50s and 60s, yeah, yeah. talking about the theory of the second best. I think he said, if I can get this right, um, the problem with second best solutions is that they are derived by second best economists um, implemented by third best bureaucrats and approved by fourth best politicians <laughs> and <laughs> we haven't got the first best what do we do? it is always going to be messy and the choice you make has to depend on the circumstances of the time and so I think I have changed my own view on this particular subject over the past mm. um, three or four years. Yeah. Okay, I think we have time for one last question. Um, we have someone at the back in glasses. We're both gesturing at each other. 
Oh, oh, okay then. Uh, sorry, I didn't see them. Oh, okay then. You two, and we have one man at the front. Please keep them very, very brief. Okay, um, I, I'm Bruno Pryor. I'm one of the trustees here, and my day job is in renewables, but not that kind of renewables. Renewables are cheap and went there when you want it. Um, I'm more comfortable with your diagnosis and prescriptions. This is a question more about the, the, the diagnosis, to be friendly. Um, the, the dominant factor in our industry, of course, is net zero. Mm. And even before net zero, policy environment was much the same. It's driven by the need to get quite ridiculous amounts of hardware deployed, trillions of, of dollars of yeah. investment, and policy is always aimed at what they call de-risking. Now, I absolutely agree with you about the need to get the interest rate up, how will they be able to square net zero with a program to invest trillions of dollars that is only viable at negative real rates? Okay. Mm. Next question. So we'll take three in a go and then. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, that was very, very uh, in incredibly interesting idea. So thank you for, for bringing that across. Um, I was going to ask a little bit more about the first half, the recapitalizationism of the program and a little bit more detail on what that mm. would involve. How do you meaningfully raise the real rate of returns? If we, if we could snap our fingers and do this, surely yeah. we would have done so. Okay, and one final question with this gentleman at the front. Thank you, Bernard, very interesting. I mean, it seems the Bank of England can't forecast their way out of a paper bag. Mm. In your experience of the private sector, is there a better way or is the future just unforecastable? Okay, excellent. So three, three questions, uh, net zero and its effects, uh, more details on recapitalization, and why are the Bank of England so bad at forecasting? Um, well, it can't be, on the first question, it can't be done without negative real interest rates, and negative real interest may, rates mean persistent inflation. And that is um, something we should all be worried about. Um, the, sorry, sorry, the second question was, uh, on recapitalization. Recapitaliz oh, yes, I'm well, struggling you, you, here. You, I think the first thing to do is to restore democracy by reducing the power of the, um, of the Quangos, the uh, regulatory agencies, and so on. It involves um, restoring education in schools and universities, which has been, education has been replaced with work indoctrination. It involves um, substantial deregulation. And one could say it involves taking advantages of the opportunities that were presented by Brexit, which, which haven't, been, um, um, haven't been taken advantage of. It involves reducing taxes on enterprise, initiative, work. Um, the opposite of a wealth tax, because initiative, enterprise, work, create wealth, genu genuine wealth. Now, I, do I know if we could click our fingers, would it happen? Well, a lot of people don't want it to happen, first of all, because there is a huge amount of rent seeking in Western economies. And that's part of the reason I say we have to do something about the power of the, um, whatever you want to call it, the clerisy, the, the blob, the establishment, which is about um, comforting 
the, the power, the perks and the privileges of, of, of the clients of these um, organisations. Is, is it going to happen? Who knows? And um, The final question on... Are private sector forecasters any better? Yeah. Um, not much, because there's a set of incentives in private forecasts, basically the, the investment banks and the brokerage house mm. and so on. And there is always um, maybe an unconscious bias towards optimism. You know, you want people to, to, to buy the stocks and shares, you want people to invest in, 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 in companies. Um, Having said that, if you look at interest rates, the market, if you compare market forecasts for interest rates with the, the, the famous dot plot that the Fed produces every couple of months, by and large, the market has been better at forecasting interest rates than the organisation that sets interest rates. Um, The, a major problem with, I come back to this quote, this, this dreadful DSGE, which uh, one mustn't confuse with DGSE, which is a very different kettle of fish altogether. Um, Dynamic Stochastic General Equilibrium. There, there was a, an academic article a, a few years ago by um, a, a lady who's now the Assistant Director of the Division of Monetary Affairs in the Fed, and a Turkish academic, who said that the, um, the lack of forecasting ability of DSGE models is exactly what we want to see. Because we assume that all shocks are unpredictable, inexplicable. If we could forecast them, there'd be something wrong with our model. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So we have to get it wrong. <laughs> Well, on, uh, on that note, I hope you're all uh, sufficiently demoralised. Uh, we'll have to uh, call, call the evening to an end. Uh, I just have to uh, thank a certain list of people. Uh, first off, the IEA donors who keep the lights on and pay for our wine. Um, the second group are the IEA book club members. Um, if you're not already a book club member, uh, feel free to speak to <coughs> Delino, the guy at the back with the pink tie um, and he'll be happy to sign you up which gives you various <coughs> uh, preferential uh, access to, to various events. Um, uh, just to let you know um, Bernard will be doing a book signing at the back and if you haven't bought a copy of the book already uh, you are free to purchase one from the stall over there. Um, other than that, just to let you know, the bar remains open till 7.30, so feel free to help yourself to whatever from there. And my final person to thank is Bernard Connolly, both for writing the book and giving us such an interesting interview. Thank you. Interview. Thank you. I've enjoyed yes. it. Thanks. Yeah. So.